please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, which can be found on page 1014 of your pew Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Amen. What's your goal in life? Some of us say our goal is to glorify God. Others of us would say, my goal is to be happy. As we listen to these, they they seem like they're in tension with each other. Because when we pursue our happiness, it's often by disregarding God and finding our own path to happiness. On the other hand, when we seek to glorify God, so many of us think that we have to crucify our self-interest and live lives that are unhappily sacrificial. And yet when we read the scripture, we see that these are not in conflict with each other, but they actually come together. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is the chief end of man, of humanity? And it says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Brings the two together. And that's what we would expect if we truly understand who God is. We go back into eternity past, we see that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And before they ever created, they were in this perfect union with each other. And we get a window of insight into this relationship when we look at Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's the longest recorded prayer of uh, of Jesus in Scripture. And he prays it shortly before he's arrested because he is pouring out his heart in what he wants for his disciples and those who follow his disciples, like 
every believer here today. And he sees two things, expresses two things that have been in the relationship between the Father and Son from before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Father and Son were glorifying, lifting up, championing each other from all eternity. Verse 24, he says, he makes his prayer and says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so we see not only were they glorifying each other, but they had this eternal, deep love relationship with each other. And the result of it is joy. They had perfect joy within themselves. And as you read this passage, you see that Jesus is praying that his disciples have the same type of relationship with God the Father, with him, that the Father and Son have with each other. And so we were created to experience what I like to call this divine party that God was having. His love was so great, it, he didn't need us, but he wanted to expand this party. And he invited us in where what's happening? Love and glory. And so we were created to first experience God's glory and the fact that he has created us in his image to experience the depths of his love and in that experience to love God and to glorify him. And so to glorify God is not something that's sacrificial. It's precisely what will fulfill us because we are intended to receive and to give God his glory. And Jesus prays this for his disciples in verse 13. He says, These things I speak in the world that they, my disciples, you, may have my joy fulfilled in you. And so Jesus is praying. He says, I want you all to have the fullness of joy the same kind of joy I have. What's the joy of Jesus? That relationship with the Father, where he glorifies the Father, where he loves the Father. The passage we have before us today begins by praising and glorifying God, and then we read, in this we rejoice. And then he moves on to our love for Jesus Christ, and he talks about that as the greatest joy and glory. I hope today we understand and we can see how God brings these together. They are not in conflict. Glorifying God, happiness and enjoying him. In fact, they are the only way life should be lived by glorifying God is the only way we'll find ultimate happiness. And our pathway to happiness is glorifying God. Our Father, I pray that you, through your spirit, make this passage come alive to us. There's, there's so much in it. I, I know I'm doing an incredible disservice to it, but I trust that uh, the words today, the reading of this 
will drive us all to, to drink deeply of the riches of this passage. But lead us forward, Lord, to experience you through it today. Amen. Peter is writing to a church in a pre-Christian culture that is enduring hardship. They're being ostracized, they're being mistreated, they're being persecuted. And he writes to them, as we saw last week, by first sharing with them essentially what God has done as he's chosen them. He sanctified them through the Holy Spirit. And he's leading them on this journey to become like Jesus Christ. And that is cause for praise. So in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he bursts out in praise because of what God has done. And he's about to delineate more of God's work in our lives. And if we are not bursting out in praise, it's because we are not understanding, we are not living in the reality of all that God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And he says he's, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he, he, he describes who this God is. It isn't just, I praise God. I praise a very specific God. The God who is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a pluralistic culture today. And when we stand for, for the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, when we say that Christ is the only way to God, that the only true God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we are ostracized for that. In fact, I know a nominee for a, a cabinet post was rejected by some senators because he believed Christ was the only way. And it seems like our culture more and more is moving into a pluralism where our faith in one God, we say he is the true God. It's not that every God is equal. There is only one God who sent his son to take care of our sin. All the other religions are some sense of working our own way to God. It is only in Christianity where God's grace and his mercy reaches down to us in our brokenness and says, I will pay that price. There's only one God who has stepped into history who died for our sin and rose. And so you can do historical research. It's not by blind faith, but it is only Christianity that rises and falls on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he opens up praising the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to spend a moment on that God and Father of Jesus Christ because there are those who do not believe Jesus is actually God. Even though there's a number of scriptures 
especially in the Gospel of John, that show that Jesus saw himself as equal, saw himself as God. But the fact that it says here, God and Father, leads some people to say, well, if God is the God of Jesus, how can Jesus himself be God? I think this does not disqualify God from Jesus from being God. It doesn't say Jesus is not God. So we need to understand the reason why he picks out these two characteristics to highlight about Jesus and his relationship with God. Beca and it's because these two terms depict what is most important about Jesus' relationship with God. The two most important things we need to realize in our relationship with God. First, that he is a father. That there is an intimacy, that there is a love, that we have a God who wants the best for us. Secondly, though he is a father, though we can be that close and intimate with him, he is also God to be held up and honored, glorified, obeyed, and followed. And so, Peter brings those two together, which were so essential to Jesus Christ and are so essential to us to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he delineates more reasons to be caught up in the glory of God. He says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. First thing, he highlights the mercy of God. You see, if we believe we can earn our way to God, we believe we can stand on our own before God, there's no reason to really get caught up in how wonderful God is. And we've accomplished it on our own. We're the captain of our own ship, so why, why would we get so thrilled about God? We've made our own way. We've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. But when we realize how lost we were, when we understand that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's when we begin to realize how wonderful God's mercy is. That's when we begin to get caught up in this sense of relief of, I was lost, I was headed in the wrong direction, I was destitute for eternity from God, but he reached down and he loved me, he brought himself to me, and that brings excitement and joy, and desire for God. The Apostle Paul believed in himself for much of his life. In the book of Philippians, he describes his life before he was a Christian. He says, as he lays out his religious pedigree and all that he did for God, he says, if anyone could be justified or saved by how good he was, I'm that person. 
That's how good he was. Out of everybody, I'm a person who could have saved myself. But when he met Jesus Christ, he, what he thought once was serving God by persecuting the Christians, he then realized that he himself was persecuting God. And he got a whole new understanding that his works, his desire to make his way to God was rubbish in light of knowing Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so Paul says, 1 Timothy, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent op opponent, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul lived a life of love and glorifying God right up to the point of his death because he understood how destitute he was apart from the mercy of God. If we are not praising God, if we are not welling up, with, have welling up with inside of us a desire to glorify God, we do not understand how lost we are and how much we needed that grace of Jesus Christ. He continues in the passage citing three other eternal blessings that uh, are praiseworthy. The first is hope. The second is our inheritance, and the third is our salvation. Hope, he says, you are born again to a hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, hope in Scripture is very different than the way we use hope. We use hope as uh, a wishful expectation. So I might say, oh, I hope I could get into UMass. I hope that he's nice to me. I hope I get a promotion in my job. Wishful thinking. Hope in Scripture is a rest and trust in something we are fully assured will take place. It's just in the future. So the hope that we can experience that can be, give us an entirely new perspective on the here and now because we can have our eyes on something that's going to take place that we know is going to be true. One of those things is our eternity with God. Jesus promised his disciples and all believers in John 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself and where I am, I will be with you also. See, we use this at, at funerals very often to, to comfort us in our grief. It's not wishful thinking. It's hope. It's an assurance that Jesus has given us. Even as he says that, he says, I would not have said this to you if it was not true. So we know believers 
who die in Jesus Christ have an eternal home in heaven. Think about that. What's the greatest or the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is they die and go into nothingness or pass into judgment. It's something we all face. Each of our journeys end in death. So no matter how full our life is here, the last chapter of our life is, and he, she dies. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it then says, and Jesus Christ has received you into his glory and his joy and his love for eternity and you live happily, eternally, ever after. Hope gives us a foundation in which to endure everything in life. Hope also means that in the end, Jesus Christ triumphs. We read that at the the end of Revelation. Uh, Doran read part of it in Isaiah. In the end, Jesus Christ wins. No matter what's happening and how difficult things seem to be right now, we know the end of the story. You know, I've DVR'd a few of the Patriots' Super Bowls. Uh, Most of them I watch, one of them I don't. Uh, But I go back to this incredible game a couple years ago when the Patriots are losing 28 to 3. There's three minutes left in the third quarter. It's 28 to 3. The Patriots have been making mistake after mistake after mistake. And you know what? I sit there going like, I can't wait to see the end because I know the end. I have a hope in the triumph. And so too, no matter what takes place in our lives, and, and this is an incredible blessing to those who are suffering, no matter what I'm going through, I know the end of the story. Jesus lives, Jesus wins, and I'm, I'm with him. So there's the blessing of the hope. Then there is the riches of the inheritance, and notice it says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, ready for you in heaven. It's not, again, wishful thinking. It's already there. It's just waiting for us. The treasures of this earth, they can be stolen, they can rust, uh, they deteriorate, they fade, but not this inheritance. And so what is the inheritance? I'm not exactly sure. But there's two things I do know about this inheritance. One, the Holy Spirit is a down payment of this inheritance. Just consider the beauty and blessing of the Holy Spirit. He comes, he's given you new life. He comes called alongside you to be an encourager, to empathize with you, to to, uh, lift you up in your suffering, to challenge you, to lead you forward. He's there every step of the way. That's just the down payment. He's the one who makes Jesus Christ real in our lives and brings that feeling of love into us. That's the down payment. What's the rest of it like? It says we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What's Christ getting in heaven? 
glory, the love, uh, the, tr the spiritual treasures and blessings. Our inheritance is we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're receiving what he receives in eternity. And as 1 John says, when we see him, we will actually become like him. Romans 8 says that whom he foreknew, he justified, whom he justified. He, and he goes through, uh, ultimately, he glorified. So we have an inheritance. And we have a salvation. We are protected by God to a salvation. Now, I'm going to unpack salvation in two weeks much, much more fully. But let me just say today that salvation is more than going to heaven. The word salvation means deliverance. And it first speaks to we are delivered from God's judgment. That's why you go to heaven. That's why you get a relationship with God. Because that judgment of sin has been paid for. But salvation also means we are delivered from the futility of life. That our salvation is that this life becomes all it is meant to be with the eternal riches that this life produces. But again, I'm going to unpack that a little more fully. So what do we see? It's, he says, these are cause for rejoicing. And so we see, honoring God, blessing God for all he has done for us brings us a joy as we rejoice not only in what we got, but in the giver of mercy who gave it to us. And he goes a step further. He says, in your suffering. He said, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the testedness the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it by tested fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The readers are going through really hard times. Times that grieve the heart. What we're saying here today with all these blessings does not mean Christians don't go through hardship. They don't go through grief in this life. We have those feelings. Things in life hurt. Disappointing. But what he says is the Christian who has an eternal perspective can see a value and a treasure in these sufferings that other people can't see. Points up three things. One, for a little while. It's a little while. Now, sometimes we may not feel that way. We may feel, no, these are, this is suffering. We're enduring our entire lives. Even if we suffer our entire lives, which few of us do, in light of eternity, it's a moment. The Apostle Paul, he goes through his suffering. He's beaten. He lives under uh, the threat of death continuously. Uh, he's rejected He's, he's, uh, he's shipwrecked, he, he goes without eating, 
He's imprisoned over and over again, and he says in 2 Corinthians, this light, momentary affliction. I read Paul, and I said, are you crazy? That's heavy. That's heavier than I ever want to carry, and it seems unending. You never get relief from it, and you call it light, momentary affliction produces an eternal weight of glory. You see, he had a perspective of seeing what these, this suffering would produce for eternity. And so, they're short compared to eternity. We can almost endure anything if we know we're not only going to come to an end, but we're going to come to a beautiful, glorious ending. He says, if necessary. God is sovereign. He is not trying to have you suffer because he likes seeing you suffer. He did not want to see his son crucified, suffer rejection, humiliation, and death. But it was necessary for our salvation. So think in terms of what God is trying to do in our lives. When he allows suffering in, it's because it is necessary for him to produce in us what we value and what we really want to happen. And he says it's like a refining gold. In fact, even gold can perish, but what God's doing in your life. He is refining you, and we will, we know. It is because it is to transform our characters into the character of Jesus Christ. That's why James says, rejoice in your trials. Paul says, exalt in your tribulation. Each have a, their eyes on what it's going to produce in our lives. We are all going to suffer. The question is, will it produce bitterness or will it produce a rest and trust and the love and hope of God and transform our characters? In this, we can rejoice. And then he turns to love. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Christians say they love Jesus Christ. And I can see that people who aren't yet Christians might say, I don't quite understand it. Uh, That guy lived 2,000 years ago. You've never seen him. You haven't had a vision of him. You haven't heard him audibly. You can't, you haven't touched him. I mean, he's like, you know, he's like a fantasy. How can you love somebody you've never seen? And Peter says, you do. You love him. And you can love him who you never saw in part when you embrace and see the beauty of what he's done for you. I have a friend uh, who has relatives in Greece. Never been over there, never saw them, 
And one day, she gets this notice that two aunts in Greece she never met died and left her their home on a Greek island that she now goes and enjoys every, every summer. Now, all of a sudden, her feelings toward these aunts that she's never met before is like lit up on fire because she's, she's basking in these blessings. But more than that in Jesus Christ is those aunts died. They no longer had a presence. Jesus Christ has a presence today through his Holy Spirit. And as Paul says in Romans 8, it's through the Spirit of God that our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. I think one of the things that I experienced so quickly in, after I accepted Jesus Christ in my last year of college was I would pray every night, but it was as though I was praying to the ceiling. And after I accepted Christ, there was like this, just this different experience that when I prayed to God, it wasn't just to a father, it was to daddy, which Abba means. There's a sense of intimacy because Christ is alive today. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So yes, indeed, we can love someone we have never physically met because we have spiritually met him and we enjoy what he has left to us. And so these believers have this incredible love. And what does that love lead to? Joy inexpressible with glory. Um, you see, because it's wonderful to be loved, it's even more wonderful to really love. Uh, in the film... In the film Marvin's Room, it's a movie about uh, two sisters. Meryl Streak is this kind of little bit of a, a wild sister who went off and just pursued her dreams, pursued her route to happiness, while Diane Keaton stayed home and took care of her, their eccentric aunt and their dying father. And they, they come back together uh, Meryl Streep's really found no happiness at all, but she sees this incredible happiness in a sister who devoted herself to two others. And this is the conversation goes. She says, uh, Meryl Streep says, Oh, Lee, excuse me, uh, Diane Keaton says, Oh, Lee, Lee, I've been so lucky. I've been so lucky to have Dad and Ruth to have such love in my life. You know, I look back and I've had such, such love in my life. And Meryl Streep responds, oh, they love you so much. And Diane Keaton says, no, no, that's not what I mean. No, no, I mean that I love them. I've been so lucky to be able to love someone so much. Because the greatest fulfillment comes being loved but loving back. As Peter says right at the end, he says, result of your love, you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the salvation of your life, the fulfillment of your life itself. A medieval philosopher, Blaise Pascal, 
said this, all men seek happiness. That's without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this one end. What is it then that this desire and this ability proclaim to us? That there was once in man a true happiness of which there remains to, uh, of which there now remains to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill with all his surroundings, seeking things absent, the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. What Pascal is saying is, we all want happiness. And what that means is it's in our DNA. It's part of God's creation of us to desire to be happy. But we pursue it in so many different ways and we only get traces of it. And what that shows us is that true happiness only comes from the infinite God himself. And we know that happiness comes when we glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our Father, we thank you for the words of Peter. We thank you for him uh, speaking to those in a pre-Christian culture 2,000 years ago, words that speak to us today in a post-Christian culture. We thank you. May they give us hope. May they give us an eternal perspective, but most of all, May they give us you. In Christ we pray, amen.